1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 12, go through the end of the chapter. And tonight, the title of our our lesson is, We Prioritize Correctly. Um, let me kind of illustrate that. Do you remember... You remember when we played um, that one team, Caleb, in baseball, and uh, it was like in the middle of this terrible field, we had to drive out forever. It was the team that we whooped. You remember that team? Okay. So, yes, the the only team that we beat. Yes, the one team. That's how we can remember it is is because the only time that we ever actually won a game was against these guys. Now, this was a high school league, okay, and there was a fifth grader that got up to bat. Now, you got to keep in mind, we'd driven for like three or four hours just to get to this field. And they were not playing with the same level of players that we were. <laughs> they were like, they literally had fifth graders playing um, on their on their team against our seniors. And Caleb was a senior this year. So like, it was not a fair match. It wasn't a good game. It was just, it was bad. So the field was terrible. First off, it seemed like, I don't know, like if it was a topographical map, it would look like a kid just scribbled on a piece of paper. It was bad. And so this one kid gets up to play, and Caleb was pitching. I was catching. And this is probably my favorite of all-time baseball story besides when I murdered the umpire. But that's my student's favorite story. I haven't told them this one yet. But uh, I think the kid was so small. He was like for real about this tall. And – He just was not, you could tell, like he had gloves on that he had to work to keep on his hands. He was so small and he's like tripping in potholes all the way over from his dugout because the field's terrible. And by this point we quit playing for points and we're just starting to play for practice, which is saying something because (coughs) our team was not the team that quit playing for points. Like we should have mercy ruled them, but it took too long to get to that point. So we couldn't do it because of the inning we were in. And so it was just a day that just kept going on forever. That game lasted forever because neither of us could hit the ball. So it was like this eternal game of, of lob the ball and the pitcher's arms are getting tired and the umpire's ready to go. He's like getting mad at us at this point. So this one little fifth grader gets up there and you can tell this is his first time ever being up to bat because the entire dugout is still cheering. We haven't heard a thing from them in like 20 minutes because we're just crushing them. And the whole 20 minutes was there at bat. So it was just rough. This kid gets up there and I'm pretty sure you thought that this just doesn't matter. So like your pitch wasn't even really considered a pitch at this point. It was like a delivery by gravity. It was just kind of a, like you lobbed it. it. I don't know. It was, it was bad, but this kid's like up to bat, like he's going to beat Godzilla or something. And he's like totally into it. He's winding the bat up. He's got all this spunk. He's been trash talking our team from the dugout. He's like the one kid yelling at anything. Like his parents forgot to beat him and tell him you don't do that all the time. So he's up at the bat, swinging the thing, like getting warmed up. And he's stoked to be here. And Caleb and I are just like, this is going to be so easy. So he's been knocking these guys out left and right because he's got this perfect pitch thing that it just always goes where he wants it. He knocks out all of these batters and this kid gets up. And when Caleb threw the ball, it was like he was seeing an alien artifact or something. Like he's trying to unlock the mysteries of the baseball. <laughs> what is behind this? What do I do with it? And then he swung and I thought there's no way he's going to get this, but he actually connected and he hit the ball and rolled like straight at you. So you pick it up off the ground, but that's not the best part. The best part is where, He doesn't go running towards first base. 
He ran a third base. He was playing a game. It wasn't baseball, but it was a game. It was it was this kid's game, whatever you want to call it. And so he goes charging with all of his soul that way. And then Caleb thinks, what? <laughs> By this point, like the umpire behind me has his mask off. There's no way a ball is going to be thrown in this play. Like you're just going to go tag him. And he's his mask is off. He's laughing so hard. He's like doing sit-ups at this point. It's bad. And so the kid figures out because his entire dugout is screaming at him and our entire dugout is screaming at him too, wrong way. And I'm like, bro, go that way. And he looks back and he's like, what? He carried the bat with him half of the way to third base, by the way. <laughs> like He's just supposed to drop that. But he ran with it. And then he finally figured out that he's supposed to go the other way. By that point, Caleb was already in the middle. And then we intercepted him, got him out. And it was just, it was nuts. He was playing a game that was not baseball he was in his own little world and he had no idea what he was doing but sometimes we as christians we do that too we got a game that we're supposed to play paul would term it a race that we're supposed to run and that race is called christianity and sometimes we just don't know what we're doing and sometimes we make wrong decisions and we start running to third when we should be running to the first and we start playing our own game because we're in our own little world and the game that we play is called me, not the game called Christ. And I don't want our church to be one that makes that mistake. Because sometimes we prioritize things that just shouldn't be prioritized. And we, we take what we want to do, we put that above what Jesus wants us to do, and that's never going to return well. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read verses 12 through 20. I want you to hear the verses, ingest these verses, pay attention to these verses. And then we're going to break them apart. And I'm going to give you every blank on your page at the same time. Um, it's different, okay? Like tonight's just going to be a little bit different. So look at chapter 6, verse 12. Remember, he just got done telling him, we don't go to court with other Christians. Before that, he just got done telling him, uh, we don't keep company with Christians who call themselves servants of Christ and yet choose sin openly and repeatedly. We don't do that. And now he says this. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. Food is for the belly, and the belly is for food, but God will destroy both of them. Now the belly is not, or the body is not for sexual immorality or for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God has raised us up. I'm sorry, God has raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. Do you not know that your bodies are the parts of Christ? Shall I then take the parts of Christ and make them the parts of a harlot? God forbid. Then he asked them, what? Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Then he says, escape from sexual immorality. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Then he asks them again, what? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, and that you are not your own? Verse 20 is the capstone of this whole paragraph, this whole thought. He says, you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
The key takeaway for tonight is to live as the body of Christ. Live as the body of Christ. Sometimes we play our own game and we live as the body of me. We live in the goals of me. And that kid taken off to third base thought that he had like the shortcut around the baseball field, like he discovered some magic loophole. But he was playing on rules that weren't real. And sometimes that's what we do too as Christians is we play with rules that we create. We write our own rule book, but God never asked us to do those things. We make decisions because we feel like they make sense to us. Let's look at that first, the first thought there that Paul kind of lays out. In verse 12, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. In King James, it would say that all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. That means not all things are going to um, to expedite the process of pleasing God. Not everything's going to help me in my Christianity. So just because something is okay for you to do, let's, let's, for instance, in Christianity, can we eat any kind of meat that we want? Yes. Could the Jews do that back under the law? No, they couldn't. You know, they couldn't eat bacon. Well, I'm glad that we can. How about a, an issue? Back in the day, what you ate was more of an issue, but today... The debate is more about what do you drink? Can Christians drink? Can Christians not drink? Well, all things are lawful to me. And if you find a verse in the Bible that says that Christians, that it would be a sin specifically says that to drink, then you'd be taking a verse out of context or you'd be writing passages that don't exist. The Bible nowhere says that specifically. All things are technically lawful unto me. But is it really going to help me? Does it please God? And I think sometimes what we do is we take, we take the approach of, I can do it, therefore God must be okay with it. Otherwise, he would have told me not to do it. Does that make sense? Sometimes we think through that lens of what can I get away with instead of how can I please my Savior. And really, that's our two ideologies that you can follow that are on your page. The first is law, and the second is glade is grace. Number one, the word is law, that first blank. Number one is law. How little can I do to be okay? So when you follow the law, how little can I do to be okay? Number two is grace. How much can I do to please God? Now, I don't normally give you both blanks at the same time, so... You can tune me out from this point forward. You have all your jobs done. But if you listen past now, um, then you'll hear these two ideas, law versus grace. And the heart that follows the law thinks, what can I get away with? What's the least amount that I have to do not to get in trouble? But on the other side, when you look at your life as one that's full of grace, your ideology is that of grace. You believe in grace. Then you ask, how much can I do to please God? Now, how much you do for something, that might be that you are involved in church. That might be that you're not involved in church because God's called you to something else to do. Sometimes we get so enraptured in our service to Christ or what we call Christian service that we forget obligations to family or to even ourselves sometimes. And that's not where we should be either. But the question isn't how little can I do to get away with it. It's how much can I please God? And when your life is really governed by that, then I think you have a different perspective. If you're like me, 
then you've thought this before. What does it really look like to follow Jesus 100%? Probably thought that. Then right after that, you think, but that means that I would have to. And that's where the thought stops. Because to really do it, have to do some uncomfortable things. And under the law, then we, we hop back to, well, what are the minimum requirements to make God happy? How can I get away with as much of the life that I want as I can when really he's asking us, just please me? Under the law, everything might be lawful for you. It might be okay for you to do something. But if your goal is to please God, that's not going to be your argument anymore. Your, your thought pattern won't be, I can do this, so you can't take that away from me. Although that might be a true thing, yes. Can you have preferences that are different than mine? Absolutely. I think in that instance, we should keep this in mind. This is lawful for me. So you might not like the, the music that I listen to or the show that I watch, but I'm okay with God on that. And if I have peace about it, then you can't say that I don't. And if God gave me that peace, you can't take it away from me because God gave it. So preferences may be different. And in this instance, all things are lawful for you. And there's also things that aren't helpful. For instance, there's some music that I would listen to in person on my own time that I probably wouldn't play in the middle of a church service. Anybody else with me on that? Everybody. Right. We all probably listen to things that aren't beneficial to church. Are they bad songs? No. Are they talking about filth and things, degeneracy that I don't need to be listening to? No. But are they church music? Also, no. So that's a, a brilliant everyday example that all of us, you said, relate about. There are things that are lawful to me, but maybe not expedient, at least in this area of my life. And there's different beliefs that you hold. There's different practices that you have. There's different habits that you have that you and God are okay with. And if he didn't give you peace about it, you probably stop because you love him. But you also don't have to go out and tell that to everybody because they might disagree with you. And that's okay because they're entitled to because to them, where they stand is where they are right with God. And if God were to change that, then they have to answer to him on that. <coughs> so all things are lawful to me, but not everything's helpful to me. It might not be expediting the process of my glorifying God. But I just want to keep walking through the passage because in this first one, you might, in your Bible, it might have quotes around some of these sentences. All things are lawful to me, and my Bible is in quotes. The reason is, there was this group of Christians called the Gnostics, in, and they had come into the Corinthian church, and they started teaching some false doctrines. Okay, they, didn't, they didn't believe the Bible like we do. And they, that was almost their motto. Well, that's lawful to me, so why should I not do it? It's not against the law, so why... Would I not do it? But Paul contrasts that. Because if you take the first verse, all things are lawful to me, and then you go against the last verse of our passage, verse 20, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now you see the opposite. There's, I can do what I want to do because it's not illegal. You can't tell me otherwise. Now instantly when you hear those words, you think, anyone saying that is just bowed up, they're ready for a fight, you're ready to argue with somebody. You can't take away their rights. Don't tread on me kind of Christianity. That's what you think of. All things are lawful to me. You can't take away that. And on the other end, you hear glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
And in that you hear, that's somebody who's full of grace. That's somebody whose life has been changed by the gospel. It's not bowed up. That's not argumentative. That's not given to strife. That's not envious. That's This is where God has me, and I want to please him. And between those two verses, he takes us on kind of a trail that, I'm going to be honest, did not make sense to me. I read this over and over and over, and I could not make sense of it until I finally did, and it clicked, and I had a new level of understanding. Now, it's not a new level of understanding about the Bible, like you can't see this and I can or something like that. It's a new level of understanding about me because James tells us that the Bible is a mirror, and the Bible shows us who we are. And I saw who I was in this passage. And maybe if we just read through these, talk through it just a little bit for just a few minutes, maybe you'll see where you are too. I hope that at the end of tonight, all of you will see yourself in the second category where you live by grace and you think all the time, what can I do to please God? But if you're not there yet, it at least gives us a roadmap for how to get there. And so I just want you to evaluate your life. Let's look through the next few verses. So chapter chapter 6, verse 12, it says, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful to me. And here's the second half, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. That refers to addiction. So I can I can be within God's God's plan lawfully and be addicted to something. But I cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit and be filled with something else that controls me. You can't. The Bible literally contrasts that, specifically with drunkenness, but I think there's a lot of other things that are addicting than just alcohol. And if we're in any way addicted to something, then you are under the control of something else. There's also sometimes the opinions or even the beliefs that we hold that control us when God should be the one controlling us. The Bible doesn't say anything about that, so it must be lawful for me to believe. Well, I'm not going to be brought under the power of anything. You can believe that if you want to, but I'm not going to let it consume me and, and overcome my life. And some people get stuck on these little beliefs that they insist are godly and that God would be supportive of and he doesn't have a problem with, when really we should just be thinking, what does God want me to do today and how can I please him more? So that's the contrast. And then he goes in verse 13 and he brings up another, another reasoning point. Another. So remember the Gnostics that I told you about, the bad guys that taught bad things in the Bible? They said, all things are lawful to me as their motto. And the reason is, they would use this next sentence to kind of illustrate that. They would say, food is for the belly, and the belly is for food. They would say, um, if it's lawful for me, then I was made to do it. If it's, if it's okay for me to do, then I was made to do those things. Now, somebody today would take that and they would say, well, if the Bible doesn't say anything about alcohol, then I should just, I can go get drunk whenever I want. Well, the Bible does say stuff about getting drunk. It doesn't say anything about drinking necessarily. Um, it, it points to not doing that. That's not my point tonight. But they would say, I'm legally, under God's law, allowed to drink. First off, are you under the power of it? So I think that that's important. Second off, is it helpful to you? I think that's important. But third off, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. Just because the belly is made for food and food is made for the belly 
doesn't mean that it's going to last forever. In fact, right after that, it says that point has no purpose because God will destroy both of them. And then he says this, he takes their same illustration and he applies it to the body. He says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Fornication, adultery, sexual sin is not what the body is made for. Although the body is made for sexual pleasure. Just because you're made to be able to do something doesn't mean that you should. And sometimes I think these Gnostics, these these people who just contort the Bible, they say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. So I guess it's not bad for me to do. It doesn't say that I shouldn't do this thing or, or think up this way or have a habit that's like this. So I guess I could. The Bible doesn't say, maybe they're not thinking now in the Bible. Maybe they're so degenerate that they've stopped thinking about what does the Bible say. And they start thinking about what, they start thinking literally outside of the Bible because they know what the Bible says. And they, they have to go around it in order to get their life how they want it. The, um, my body was made to enjoy pleasure. My body was made to enjoy dopamine. And so this addiction that I have, or in this case, the sexual sins that I commit, those are okay for me because I was made to enjoy those things. God even gave me the ability to love this. Yes, he did. But did he give you the right to love it by giving you a husband or a wife? No. And so people would take this reasoning and they'd say, God gave me the ability to do it. So why shouldn't I? But Paul is saying, your body's for the Lord. And the Lord is for your body. And he uses the word Lord because a Lord lords over somebody. He controls somebody. And if my body is made for the service of my Lord, then he's the one who, who should be giving me my instructions, not me telling him, hey, I'm going to do this because you gave me the ability to. That's not really, that's not wise stewardship. And in this instance, it's literally sinful. Verse 14, he goes on to say this, and this didn't make sense to me either. Remember, this is a confusing passage at first. He says, God has raised up the Lord. What does that have to do with anything? We're talking about sexual immorality. We're talking about stomachs and food and the, now the resurrection. Let's just throw something else in there. But he says, why is this important? Because when Jesus was on earth, who healed the blind? Jesus. When Jesus was on earth, Whose hands were nailed to the cross? Jesus. When Jesus was on earth, whose lips spoke the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus. When he was on earth, whose feet carried him from Nazareth to Jerusalem? Jesus. When he was on earth, whose arms embraced Peter? Jesus. Whose cheek was kissed by Judas? Jesus. He was the hands and feet. He was the physical demonstration of God's will on earth. But God resurrected him. Now who's left? You and me. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. He's not on earth to do that work. He works through us to do that work. And if you are made for the Lord, then that means that you will do that work. So he's raised up the Lord by his own power, and that's the same power that someday is going to raise us up as well. And then 
in verse 20 or in verse 15, he says, do you not know that your bodies are the parts of Christ? He kind of brings it home with this. He says, you guys can go do whatever you want to do. You can act in your own way. You can say it's lawful for you or even go around what the Bible says and just start acting because of your own earthly um, carnal arguments. Or you can realize that you're the hands and feet of Jesus. And don't you know, don't you know, foolish Corinthians, that you are the body of Christ? You're the only Jesus that these people will ever see. And you're the only Jesus right now walking on earth, able to go tell other people the gospel. You're the only people who can spread the message. So don't you know that your bodies are the parts of Christ? And then he asks this, shall I take the parts of Christ and make them the part of a harlot? Should I, would Jesus ever go down to that questionable corner where there's that questionable lady in questionable clothes who entices him to do questionable things? Would Jesus do that? I don't think so. Now imagine I have a robot to control Jesus. Would I make him go do that? Would I make God sleep with somebody who is a whore? No. You're the body of Christ. So you might not be doing that with Jesus's body, but you might be doing it with yours. Why would we do that? Why would we take a part of God, put it somewhere that it doesn't belong? Why would we take our bodies and put them in situations that Jesus would never put himself in? Why would we let our eyes look at things that Jesus would not look at? Why would we use our words to say things that Jesus would never approve of? In our ears to listen to things, our minds to think about things and imagine things, or even to remember things that Jesus would choose not to remember. Why do we do those things? Because we are the people of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And Jesus wouldn't do it, so neither should we. Verse 16, and he asks this question, what? Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For two shall be one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Would I drag the Holy Spirit into a place that I shouldn't be and have him watch the things that my body would want to watch? Would I drag the Holy Spirit along with me to have a conversation with someone I ought not to have? Would I lie with the Holy Spirit standing there? Probably not. And maybe you remember those that question from when you were a little kid or in Sunday school, if Jesus were standing right there, would you be saying that? No. And then, and then you immediately shape up. But like the fact is Jesus is standing. And the fact is, if anyone should give a cup of water in my name, it's as if Jesus is the one doing it. But the same applies for if anyone would do something wrong, and bear the name of Christ. It's as if Jesus is the one doing it. Why would we do that to him? Not that he's the one sinning through us. That's not what I'm saying. It's that we are sinning when we should be reflecting his unsinful, his perfect self. And then he says in verse 18, it kind of brings it back to the, the pertinent question. Escape from sexual immorality. Every sin that man commits is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Um, 
this is a category of sin that has special circumstances. If I lie to you, I hurt you. If I have sex outside of marriage, I hurt Skylar, yes, but I hurt me. That goes with me no matter how long I live. It stays in here as long as my here is here. And you cannot get rid of things once you see them. You can't undo things once you've done them. You can't unbe places once you've gone there. And you can't unsay things once you've said them. Sometimes we I think we discount sex for what it should be. The first word that should pop in your mind when you hear that word is holy. When you hear the word sex, you should think representation. You should think closeness. You should think unity. You should think we're on the same page. You should think love. But most of the time when we think the word sex, these words might come in. If if you're wise, they might come in. But usually it's underneath of a stack of a lot of other words that don't belong. That's because these words hurt us. And they will harm you in your own body, unlike any other kind of sin. So flee sexual immorality in whatever form it comes, whatever place it is, whatever person, whatever idea, it is not pure and it harms you more than anybody else. So flee it. On top of that, it's not about what you can and can't do. Does the Bible, okay. Does the Bible Does the Bible okay, on this topic, does the Bible say anything about like pornography? Word for word, it doesn't. Does it say don't use Google the way that it should be used? No. But it does say to flee sexual immorality. I think sometimes we we use these things ways that they shouldn't. And we start to harm ourselves. And then that harm stays with you. And it shouldn't be there. But then he says this, what do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, that you are not your own. If I just can get away with it, because the Bible doesn't say anything about it, if I can do it just because I'm able to, then that means that I'm the one at the wheel. He says that you are not your own. What that says to me is that I'm not the one at the wheel, or at least I shouldn't be. If I am, I need to let go and let Jesus take the wheel. He should be the one in charge of my life. He should be the one in charge of my actions and my decisions. I cannot be that anymore. In this, I know the immediate context because the Corinthian church was dealing with sexual immorality. I know the immediate context refers to that. Deals with a man sleeping with his his stepmom. I get that. That's not... I don't think where we are, but I do think that the same principle of I'm not mine 
applies no matter what sin we're talking about. If you're a liar, you're not your own. It's not your mouth. Don't use it like that. If you think dirty thoughts, it's not your brain. Stop treating it like it's yours. If you're going places or, or thinking things or looking at things or doing things, saying things, any of the things that you can do in your life that are against God's will, you're not your own. So quit acting like you are. You're trying to play your game and run into third when everybody's just laughing at you because it's not the game you're playing. Run that way. By the way, it says to flee sexual immorality, to flee fornication. There's some things that you cannot fight. There's some things you just aren't strong enough. Sexual immorality is one of them. But for you, it might be something else. It might be something different. For you, it might be those depressive thoughts that just come over you. And in the darkness of the night, you just beat up. And where you wish that you could just run away from something you can't because it's right there with you. But you can run to someone who's bigger than your brain. That's just one of the millions of examples that we have. You run away from whatever is going to kill you, whatever is going to harm you. When you run, you can run to the one. Remember the Bible says that God is a strong tower. He's your defense. If you're righteous, you run into him and you are safe. Sometimes we just need to run from sin. We need to quit trying to be high and mighty because you can't fight sin. And you look at the story of Jesus and you think, man, he beat temptation over and over. He was tempted in all the ways that we were, and he never succumbed to it. He never failed. He never, you're not Jesus. So don't think that you're going to beat temptation. Jesus beat temptation so you didn't have to. And when you feel like you're the one at war, you're not. Because he already won. You're more than a conqueror because you didn't even have to fight the battle. He already won it for you. And the Bible promises that he made a way out for you before the temptation even started. So why worry about beating the temptation when you should just be running from it? And when you run from something, ultimately you end up running towards something else. He wasn't running from first base. He was running to third base. And sometimes we play our game by running the wrong direction. But what if we just started running the right direction? Kid might have even made it to first. Probably not, but slim chance. But when we start running towards God, pretty sure we're going to have better success. Don't you think? Okay. Sure. Maybe my opinion on this is flawed. Maybe I have a hole in my theory. But can we all at least agree that you probably have better success against sin if you ran towards God more often? Maybe you're not going to win every time, but I guarantee you it's going to be better than not. So run towards him. Keep running. And eventually it becomes the only race that you even have in your mind. I've never once run towards third because I knew what the game I was playing was. No, I never really made it past second, but at least I knew. At least I knew where I was supposed to go. For us, sometimes we start playing the wrong game. But then... When we need a checkup, when we need to realign where we are, I think some of us might be running towards third. I think sometimes we fail in this. If we aren't today, we might tomorrow. If we're playing the wrong game, then just remember verse 20. You're not your own. Why? Because you were bought with a price. That price killed God. 
It's not a small thing. That price cost a lot. That price, I know we always talk about how God so loved the world. And we think of like all of the people who've ever lived, at least my mind goes to that. I think God paid the price for the world's sin and for all of the things that would ever be done wrong. But like personalize it because you're part of that world. And even if you were the only person who ever lived and breathed, you would be the world. And God would still have to pay the exact same amount of torture and price for you as if the world were 8 billion people or one. Doesn't matter. The price was still the same because the wages of sin are death. And he took death for us so we didn't have to die. You're not your own and you were bought with a price. Therefore, because of that price, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You can live under the law and you can think, how little do I have to do to be okay? What do I have to do to make God happy or at least not mad? Or you can live by grace. Ask yourself every day, how can I please God more? How much can I do to make him happy? God, you're at the wheel versus I'm at the wheel. And I'm going to steer the ship of how to glorify you. Or I'm going to let you glorify yourself through me. Which one are you living in? And if you're not living in the grace, how can you get there?